Before we get started with this podcast, a quick reminder for you. Nothing you're about to hear in this podcast should be considered as investment advice, and I mean nothing. Once you delve into the world of Tesla, all ideas of that sort of thing go out the window. This is a crazy stock doing crazy things, and before you even touch the name with any of your money, you must do a significant amount of research or preferably speak to a financial advisor. And now, on with the show. Welcome everybody to a special episode of the Grant Williams podcast. As you're about to find out, I have no co-host with me. There's no Bill Fleckenstein, there's no Stephanie Pomboy, there's no Ben Hunt to help me carry the load here. It's just me. And that's, I guess, one of the beauties of having a podcast and an interest in a wider range of subjects because um, it gives me the opportunity to, to do one of these things as and when I find something that I'm, I'm really interested about. And one such thing has come across my path this last week. Now, the subject at hand is Tesla, which uh, is something that I've been focused on and marveling at in equal measure for several years now. Any of you who followed me, uh, either through things that make a hum or various podcasts, will know my views on Tesla. I believe the company is ultimately going to end up worthless. I believe it's a fraud. I believe all kinds of things. And uh, while I've been fairly vocal about those beliefs, I've stayed out of the the fray. I've not got involved in ad hominem attacks because it's just not my style. I don't I don't get into name calling. I just state the facts as I see them. I've engaged the bulls many many times in the hope of trying to find a civil discourse in the middle. I've failed more often than I've succeeded, but that's just the nature of Tesla and the battleground that Twitter has become. But all along that ride, as I say, I've marveled at what the stock price has done. I've marveled at um, the reaction to the company, to the reaction to the man, uh, all of it. I I, I think this is going to be a story for the ages. And uh, when this era reaches its apogee, when we do move into the the end game that Bill and I've been talking about, I suspect historians will look back and perhaps not be kind to Tesla and um, a lot of the people involved in it and a lot of the stuff that's gone on. The idea of clean energy is obviously a good one. Uh, I I don't have any problem with that. I have a problem with the the way a lot of this stuff has been done. And part of that is going to form the basis of this podcast today. Now, while I was at Real Vision, uh, I produced a, a short documentary on Tesla, and I set out to do that in, in such a way as to present, as I always try and do, both sides. I, I am a bear. As I said, my, my views on it are well known, but I wanted to try and present the bull side, uh, which I did through talking to you know, high-profile bulls, the likes of, um, of Kathy Wood, of Ross Gerber, just to give them a platform to to talk about their views on the company. And then, you know, as, as is always the case with me, I prefer to let the audience make up their mind. I'm happy to offer my opinion. I'm happy to try and present both sides, but then ultimately it's up to you, the listener, to make up your mind. As part of that process, I got to know the anonymous Twitter poster, Tesla Charts, quite well. I've spent time talking to him on the phone. I've met him. We've had dinner. We've had drinks. Um, and I feel like I've gotten to know him as a person. Uh, he's not... Uh, a two-dimensional character. He's very much a three-dimensional character. Him and Georgia Orwell, his partner, uh, have done a phenomenal job with their Tesla Charts podcast. And when you talk about the origins of that uh, podcast, and in fact, the, the even the Twitter handle, you know, this was really an experiment in social media that, that took on a life of its own. 
They've done great work in their podcast. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet, you, you, you really must do that. It's the TC's Chartcast, it's called. It began very heavily Tesla-focused. It's moved out of that now, and it's while it still covers Tesla, they, they talk to a lot of people about a lot of interesting things. And it's, it's a really good, intelligent podcast that I think, if you enjoy the end game, if you enjoy the Super Terrific Happy Hour narrative game, you'll enjoy that too. This past week, they put up a podcast, a two-part podcast, with a guy called Carl Hansen, who is a, a, a Tesla whistleblower. Uh, it's a well-known story if you've been following it. He was working on the security detail at Tesla. He blew the whistle on a suspicious activity that he uh, that he saw happening, and he got fired and uh, retaliated against uh, in in a pretty heinous way, obviously. Now, this is all still going through the court, so I have to add the word allegedly, obviously. But he uh, and, and TC and Georgia spent about three hours discussing this case uh, on a two-part podcast last week. Uh, and again, if you haven't listened to that, I would advise you do so either before or after you've heard this. It really is just an extraordinary story and a, and a, and a dynamite conversation, brilliantly marshaled by TC and Georgia. And so I contacted him because I really wanted to talk about this. Um, I wanted to talk about the podcast with him, his thoughts about the conversation he had with Carl, because oftentimes whistleblowers come across as kind of kooky, kind of wacky sometimes, and and it's sometimes difficult to listen to extraordinary tales from people uh, who seem sometimes a little bit eccentric and to to take them 100% uh, at their word and to take them seriously. And I found that not to be the case with Carl Hansen. And what I found was an extraordinarily compelling story told by a man with great recollection, who was very calm, very composed, communicated effectively. And this is a guy, as you'll hear when we get into our conversation, who's who's lived a life and has done very serious jobs, the kind of jobs which you don't get to do unless you pass all kinds of security tests, all kinds of intelligence tests. I mean, you don't end up in the places Carl Hansen's ended up in without being the real deal. And so, graciously, uh, TC has agreed to come on and talk to me about that podcast, about Tesla, about his thoughts on it, and about the story of Carl Hansen, which I think you're going to find fascinating. Now, for the bulls among you, either switch off now or, preferably, listen to this with an open mind, because there is no black and white. There are all kinds of shades of grey. And what you're about to listen to is a story that is extremely shady and extremely grey. So, you know, if you listen to it with an open mind, if you still believe that um, everything in the garden is rosy and the Elon Musk of the world can do no wrong, the Teslas of the world can do no wrong, that's absolutely fine. But to dismiss a story like this out of hand, I think, is, uh, is foolish, frankly. So, with that being said, why don't we just settle back and invite TC... Tesla Charts to the podcast. Well, TC, welcome, mate. Thanks for doing this so much. Oh, thank you, Grant. It's a pleasure to uh, to speak with you. You're you're my hero, and so any chance I get to uh, have a conversation with you, I, I jump at it. Well, listen. They say choose your heroes carefully. I will. I will add the phrase "more" to yours. It's a special instruction for you. Way more carefully than that. Well, I would say I should do a better job of choosing my villains. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I think you've chosen perfectly. <laughs> which, uh, you know, is is the is the reason we're here now. You know, I, I, you and I have spoken many times over the last few years. I feel like we've gotten to know each other pretty well. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm a pretty decent judge of character. And and my my misses over the years have become apparent fairly quickly. Um, and, you know, the reason I bring that up is because, 
obviously, I, I don't know whether the haters will even join in on this um, on this podcast. Uh, just maybe throw a few one star reviews just to kind of screw things up. But you know, the thing that I think is important for people to understand is having gotten to know you. I know what kind of guy you are, and and you like me are concerned primarily with with fairness and with and with I won't use the the J word because it's so compromised these days. But really, I think you like me have a sense of right and wrong, and it's 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 that which kind of motivates you. It's certainly that which motivates me, uh, you know, particularly in in relation to the topic that we're here to discuss today, which is Tesla. Yes, absolutely, and and like. Nobody's perfect, and uh, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. But um, this entire Tesla story is is really, a, I think, a profound metaphor for where the um, the stock market in general and the economy uh, uh, is headed. And and I think actually is is a pretty good, pretty good um, you know metaphor for a lot of things that are wrong in society. And I, and I, it's really a fascinating story to watch. And so as this story unfolds, I think there are many lessons beyond just the name um, that can be drawn from it. And, and not the least of which is sort of the evolution of social media and journalism and reporting on uh, financial topics in general as well. And so I think there's, there's an enormous amount of attention attached to the Tesla name. And for good reason, it's, it's a, a historic story regardless of how it ends. Um, I, I have a very strong belief into how it must eventually end. Uh, certainly doesn't seem that way as we record this today. But uh, it is really, I think, a historic and a profound um, story stock for this generation and, and, and what we're seeing in the markets today. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. I've, I've said in the past that to me, the reason I'm so fascinated with it is, is, as you said, this wraps up everything about the world we live in. It's, you know, it's, it's celebrity culture, it's story stocks, it's authority, it's whistleblowers, it's free money, it's zero cost of capital, it's, it's malinvestment, it's everything. And, and that's why I focus so, so squarely on it. Now, uh, you know, I, I suspect a lot of people watching this, th- which listen to this podcast, sorry, will, will, will know your story, but let's, let's do, do a quick, a quick skinny on your background, just so people understand, um, who and what Tesla charts is. Sure. Um, I joke around the office here that I, I used to be a person and now I'm a Twitter account. <laughs> um, you. You're an avatar. So Congratulations. I'm an avatar. Yes. I, you know, that's actually a shift in the way people interact today, which is not unimportant. So it's only a, a half joke. But um, as you know, I'm a, I'm a trained scientist. I have a, a PhD in the physical sciences and I started my career as a, as a practicing scientist in the field of um, sort of environmental technologies and technologies that reduce carbon footprint and or solve other pollution issues um, and done, did other things as well. Um, transitioned away from the lab into management, had a, a decade plus run uh, in positions of increasing authority, um, sort of got fed up with the corporate world a couple of years ago. And around the time that I had transitioned out of the corporate world and into sort of a more entrepreneurial life, um, I, I started Tesla Charts as, as a Twitter account. Um, I started Tesla Charts predominantly because, you know, as a, as, as a scientist, um, the things that I were, was good at were sort of understanding complexity, um, talking to people in different fields and getting to the heart of the issue. But most importantly, I was able to visualize the context and, and the concepts uh, of the science that was being done. And in particular, I had the strength of communicating complex scientific principles visually to non-scientists, um, investors, um, various other stakeholders in the company as we sort of fought for budgets and things like that. 
And so I've always had a strong passion for data visualization. Um, and then my sort of realization moment for Tesla uh, was the, the solar shingle reveal in, in late 2016 when Elon presented to the world what I know to be a fabricated product, um, full-blown, you know, Theranos-style fake product um, that was going to revolutionize the solar industry. It just happened to be something that I was pretty good expert in. And I knew in the moment that that was complete fabrication. And it was sort of a life-changing moment. Clearly never anticipated changing my life in the way that it ultimately did. But once I sort of watched that reveal, I couldn't unsee it. Um, and so for about a year and a half, I was a, a lurker on Twitter. There's this whole phenomenon called FinTwit, financial Twitter, which I know you're very aware of. Maybe some of your audience members aren't, but this this amazing free-flowing Wild West community of people who, in a mix of sort of uh, uh, anonymous accounts and, and people acting as themselves, you know, this is really a, this amazing phenomenon of information sharing, arguing, um, name calling, but otherwise entertaining each other uh, on Twitter that I had been watching for about a year and a half. And, and I decided that my uh, participation could be data visualization around Tesla, um, almost as a joke. So I created this account called Tesla Charts. Uh, and I started the account basically making charts about Tesla's financials. Um, and that account was sort of muddling along, not really making much of an impact. I, you know, it, it gathered a bit of an audience, but narrowly focused to people that were genuinely interested in Tesla and bearish on the name. Uh, and then all that sort of changed uh, famously, at least for me, when Elon Musk sort of came after my account on Father's Day of 2018 and sort of blew the account up. Um, and the rest is kind of history. So now I'm a Twitter account. Now you're a Twitter account. Now, yeah, for me, I've I've kind of been a fascinated observer for this this whole thing. And but I've I've kind of stayed out the frame. My my views are very clear. I've I've made documentaries about this. I've written about it multiple times, and my views are very clear. But I've I've always tried to engage the bulls. I've actively sought out bulls when when I I did a podcast about this. You know, I, I had Mark Spiegel on to give the bear case for Tesla, and I spent months trying to find. Uh, a bull to put the other case to. So, you know, I, I've, I've spent time getting information from Ross and Kathy and all the, but, you know, I, I definitely am not someone that just says, I refuse to engage those guys. And so what I'm hoping for this is, you know, anybody listening to this who who is a bull, but is at least reasonable and rational to just listen to this conversation without writing this off. Because for me, I've I've spent plenty of time talking to you and I've gotten to know you. I know the person behind the avatar, and that person is someone worth listening to, and someone who, despite all the all the brickbats and all the slings and arrows that are flying around in this this Tesla world, looks at this stuff through a critical eye, not an obsessive eye, and tries to boil down what's happening. And as you said, put it in a way that people can understand. So I, you know, I, I'm dearly hoping that if there are any bulls listening to this, they can just sit back and listen to the conversation. Um, and and then make up the right end of it. And if they're still not troubled by any of the stuff we're going to talk about, that's absolutely great. And and the one thing I think way too many people worry about with this, both shorts and longs, is the stock price. This is not about the stock price. So let's put that to one side. It's not a case of the stock price is going to zero, which is one argument. It's not, hey, look at the stock price up at the 2000s. Let's forget the stock price and let's talk about the company and the man, because I think that's way more important than the stock price, particularly now. So, look, um, you set up TC's Chartcast, uh, I guess it must be about a year ago. You can, must be coming up in a year based on the episode numbers, is that right? A um, little less than a year ago. A little uh, less, yeah. yeah. yeah we, we launched, I think, in January. 
uh, late okay, December, so we're, January. We're getting yeah. there. We're getting there. So getting talk, there. talk a little bit about about the, the kind of impetus behind that and, and what you set out to do and, and if that that purpose has changed or morphed or, or, or just the whole experience of, of doing the TC's podcast, uh, Chartcast. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to describe it. So first of all, the the thing about Twitter, you know, your strength is your weakness. Um, you're limited to 140 characters. And so that, uh, you know, on the one hand forces you to distill your message to the essence of it. But on the other hand, in a real way, constrains you to um, limited limited characters and, and the ability to communicate sort of more thorough and complex message. And so we had been thinking about doing a podcast for a while. And I should say that um, the original idea to do it was, uh, was my business partner's idea. Um, her Twitter, anonymous Twitter account is at Georgia underscore Orwell underscore. Um, she's really brilliant. And um, we co-created TC's Charcast with our editor and, and sound engineer um, at Evacuation Boy. And, and we have an in-house poet, Paul's Tesla. I want to make sure that I named the entire team because it's, it's really a team <laughs> Is effort. Is there anything more pretentious for a podcast than an in-house poet? Uh, I love that. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's funny you should say that because when we had conceived this, we did a, a study of the sort of podcast market. And um, we had, you know, your old um, podcast, Adventures in Finance, in mind. And we also sort of studied what QTR is doing um, and, what, and what our good friend um, Dimitri is doing over at Hidden Forces. And so, you know, what's left to be done that is new because everyone has a podcast. Um, and so the thing we decided to do was to create a podcast, sort of an NPR for skeptical investors. Right. Um, I'd say NPR for short sellers, but short seller has such a negative connotation. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, so NPR for... Uh, skeptical investors. And and we had this loyal audience on Twitter, the Tesla Q community, which I know you're very aware of, um, TSLAQ. Um, but it, we didn't want to make a Tesla podcast. Um, so you'll notice Tesla's not in the name of the podcast. It's TC's Chartcast. And um, what we decided was, you know, we're going to have two attributes to the brand, which is really deeply intelligent discourse, um, like you're doing now with your whole series of podcasts, uh, you know, the end game and super terrific happy hour and, and the narrative that, that you're doing with Ben Hunt. Um, but they would be very much guest focused. And so, you know, our whole strategy is our podcast is for the guests. So the brand attributes were really deep, intelligent discourse centered around the guest and exceptional sound quality, which is where evacuation boy comes in. He's a magician with the audio files and, and making people sound great. And our definition of success for each and every podcast is our guests are sharing that podcast with their friends and colleagues um, proudly. And so we started the show um, 42 episodes ago now. Um, and our first guest was the, the infamous Montana skeptic, who is another FinTwit um, legend and uh, who had famously been doxxed by Elon Musk. And um, Elon attempted to have him fired for of all things, um, writing negative articles about Tesla on Seeking Alpha, uh, heaven forbid. Um, so he was our first guest and he launched the show and 42 episodes later, it's been successful beyond our wildest imaginations. We have a, a very steady um, series of excellent guests and, and a pretty solid fan base. We had, uh, we've had yourself on twice and we were very grateful for you um, coming on the show. We've had Trevor Milton, the, the CEO of Nikola, came on the show, which was great. We had spent about an hour and 45 minutes with him. Uh, and a whole variety of other characters um, on from FinTwit that otherwise might not have had a platform. Um, so we try to mix it up between sort of celebrities that bring an audience with them and then people that we think should be celebrities based on the quality of their work, uh, contrasting against perhaps the size of their social footprint for a variety of reasons. And so we've had sort of anonymous FinTwit account owners on the show who are really brilliant and 
people get to hear their voice and hear their stories for the first time. And so the show's been, been wildly fun. And then I know we're here to talk about a couple episodes that we just released um, earlier this week. Yeah, I mean, uh, just before we get to the two most recent episodes, which um, you know, I listened to yesterday and, and truly found them gripping I mean, gripping stories. It's, it's it's remarkable. We'll get to that in a second, but I, I just want to talk a little bit more about the chart cast because, you know, it's it's unfortunate that you know TC has become such a polarizing figure in the world in which you reside at the moment, and I and I understand the the desire to kind of branch out and try and you know, engage people on both sides because that's really what this is all about. And, and look, there are some people you're never going to reach, but I feel like all your conversations. Um, whether they be talking specifically about Tesla or short selling or the markets or regulation have been just, just as you said, wonderfully informative, deep dives and a chance to really get to know a lot of really smart people. So you know, kudos to both of you for that, um, Georgia too, because uh, you know, one without the other, just uh, it would be less than half as good. So you guys do a tremendous job. But this, um, these two episodes this week, uh, episodes 41 and 42, with Carl Hansen, who is uh, a rather famous now Tesla whistleblower, truly were extraordinary pieces of work. I mean, I I listened to all three hours straight through and was breathless at the end of it. I mean, it really does read like, uh, you know, some kind of, of, of spy novel. It, it's, it's unbelievable the stuff was going on. So as soon as I heard this, I, I just figured, you know what, I, I haven't done one of these podcasts without you know, Ben or Bill or Steph, but this was worthy of one that just I could dig into with you. So thank you so much for, for agreeing straight after that for, to come and do this with me. Absolutely. And and maybe to set the scene for the audience, I could get into a little bit about who Carl is. And Well, that's discuss. exactly what I was going to ask you to do. You read my yeah. mind. So, so um, why don't you one just pod, why don't you do One that? podcast host to another. You know. There you go. Or like the two Superman, uh, the Spider-Man <laughs> well, uh, pointing at each other here on the podcast. That gives, right. um, you have to be on Twitter to understand that joke. Sorry. Um, so Carl Hansen. Carl Hansen is, um, you know, quintessential um, American. Um, grew up in New York after high school, went into the military, was a, a paratrooper, <laughs> 82nd Airborne. You know, you can't make this up, right? And um, ultimately, you know, did various things in in the military and and found his way into security and investigations and, and crime investigations for various units within the military. And at, at sort of the apex of his career, he was a member of a pretty elite security team looking after the, the Department of Defense, you know, Secretary of Defense, the, the, the head honcho of the, of the Secretary of Defense. So he worked, you know, Donald Rumsfeld's security detail. He worked uh, Robert Gates' security detail. And, you know, very successful, very honorable, served his country with distinction. Um, and then ultimately, you know, found his way uh, into ne Reno, Nevada um, for personal reasons, looking for work and ended up getting a job, uh, where else, but at Tesla and at the Gigafactory as uh, an investigator. And while his time at Tesla was quite short, I think it lasted maybe four or five months, um, the things that he uncovered during the infamous summer of 2018 were really quite remarkable. And so he has um, blown the whistle on Tesla, uh, was ultimately fired from Tesla and, and from the contractor that had given him a job after leaving Tesla um, in what seems to be an obvious um, retaliation event. But he uncovered really, really amazing things. And he's not the only one. His, his story confirms 
the reporting of several journalists and is consistent with several other whistleblowers as well. And so one of the reasons why we started the podcast is once you build an audience, um, as we've done systematically week by week with high quality discourse and, and high quality audio, um, you have this platform that then you can use to give people the chance to tell their story in a holistic way. Um, that's just not possible in today's soundbite-driven, clickbait-driven financial media. Uh, and so we've gotten the podcast to the point where we were ready to expose the totality of Carl Hansen's story to the world. Uh, and that's what we did in episodes 41 and 42. And as you said, it, as we were recording it in real time and then doing the editing afterwards, it's really just a jaw-dropping jaw story. Well, listen, I mean, I... I I go into these things and, and I will absolutely happily admit that many times you'll read whistleblowers or you'll hear whistleblowers and many times they come off disappointingly as kind of kooky and kind of crazy and, and, and you find yourself doubting not necessarily the story but, the, but they just they don't have the weight and the gravitas sometimes that you need if you're going to come and make accusations about this. You need to look credible and sound credible and be a solid kind of person because obviously the benefit of the doubt is always given to the incumbents in these cases it's 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 to blow it to blow a whistle is a very brave thing to do um because the, the the burden of proof is on you and nobody wants you to be right and so you're up against it from day one but the one thing i thought about carl was just how solid he was he was he was credible he was lucid he had control of all the facts there was just something about him that was rock solid. What, what did you find as you were listening to him tell that story? Yeah, so I, I think that's why it was important for us to set up his bio, um, both yeah. on the shows and then here for, for the people that are listening, because you know you don't get to be on the security detail of Donald Rumsfeld if you're a person of, of low character and, and limited intellect. <laughs> you know? right. He's clearly right. a very smart guy, a very honorable guy. And again, like nobody's perfect. We all live our lives and make our mistakes. And, and he's probably made some um, in his life. But by and large, um, he's, a, he's a person who seems to care a lot about other people, uh, care a lot about the country, and um, tried to do the right thing while at Tesla when he was, I would say, overwhelmed by the things he was seeing. Um, and so when we were listening to him, I agree with you. Um, and you know, we wanted to make sure that we prepared well. We gave him the platform consistent with the mission of our podcast. You know, he he's, was emailing me yesterday how proud he was of the podcast and how great it turned out and how grateful he was both for the opportunity but then also the quality of the final product um, because it really was the first time in years that anybody with the semblance of a platform gave him the full opportunity to express the entirety of his story. You know, no commercials, no interruptions, intelligent discourse, follow-up questions, skeptical questions, clarifying questions, the whole nine yards. And um, he stood up, I think, quite well, um, given the fact that he's not, you know, a professional communicator. That's the other thing we've learned, you know, in doing this podcast is we have people like you and it's sort of one take, you know, and it's very easy show and you're brilliant and it's great. Um, for people that don't do this regularly, it can be very difficult. And so one of the big attributes of our show is, is we are an incredibly guest-friendly show. We prepare you. There's no ahas. Um, we discuss things in advance. He had sent uh, a stack of documents that would blow your mind that we couldn't even get into on the podcast um, to back up his case and to show the validity of the things he was going to say. And, you know, we're sort of citizen journalists and we don't want to put anything out there that's provably incorrect. 
um, there's always going to be some speculation, but the facts that he shared with us um, really aligned incredibly well with the story he told on the podcast. And so our ability, I think, as a team, um, the four of us, to create a platform where guests like him, who aren't professional communicators, feel comfortable calmly telling their story in a relatively risk-free environment um, really worked uh, for those two episodes. No, it, it, re- it really did. And and I think a big part of this conversation you and I are having is, is, is not to kind of circumvent people listening to that because uh, everybody listening to this should listen to both those episodes um, in full and hear Carl tell the story because it is it's extraordinary. The detail is amazing and the various threads of it are, frankly, incredibly disconcerting given some of the stuff that we'll get onto a bit later on in terms of the way the world is going right now. But but just if you can, frame the frame Carl's story for us, um, not in such a way that everyone's going to stop and listen, uh, is not going to go and listen to, the, to him tell it because they absolutely should, but just there will be people that want the cliff notes before we dive into kind of discussing them. So just, just give that story if you can. Sure, and, and I don't mind if, if this is the only listen that people give to it. Um, we've had a, a very good start to the podcast. The downloads are, are quite excellent and, you know, um, the manner in which people consume information today is such that maybe they'll just hear it here and, and that's fine. But um, I'll sketch the arc of his story, which is really incredible. So the first thread to pull is this um, massive organized alleged theft of copper predominantly and other raw materials out of the Gigafactory. And the scale of this is is really truly remarkable. And this is all occurring in the summer, spring, summer of 2018, just to give everyone a bit of a a benchmark. And this is at the heart of the mess that Tesla was going through around the attempted scale up of the production of the Model 3, 5,000 cars per week, et cetera. Elon had famously made several promises to investors, both, you know, on earnings calls and also in documents sort of used to raise money. He had raised um, some debt promising really sort of as, as is Elon's way, seemingly unachievable objectives um, and promising them as though they were going to happen for sure. And then the pressure that sort of creates on the teams under senior management to, to get those things accomplished can lead to corner cutting and all kinds of chaos and things like that. And, and as an outside observer of Elon's leadership style during that period, um, I felt like I knew that it had to be massively chaotic inside. So one of the elements of the chaos is there seems to be a coordinated and organized theft of copper materials on a scale that boggles the mind. And so just to benchmark the audience, um, he claims that Elon claimed in a conference call in June of 2018 that there was at least $37 million, possibly a lot more, of missing raw materials. And if you think that you know, the majority of that is copper, at $3 a pound copper, $3 a that's, pound, yeah. Yeah, that's 12 million pounds of copper. Um, I did a back of the envelope calculation. It's probably about 500 trucks of copper um, being stolen, which is almost unimaginable. Um, and so he started to pull the string on this theft. And one of the things that he sort of encountered and all the whistleblowers in Tesla sort of have the same story, which is um, internal resistance to uncovering the truth and a maniacal focus internally on making sure none of this gets out to the media. And most importantly, it doesn't impact the stock price. And so... There's sort of a fine line between uh, circling the wagons and covering up fraud. And I don't know where this falls on that line. I I have some suspicions, (laughs) but um, it's very clear that 
there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Another thing that he uncovers is an operation to make fake badges. Now, the, we should tell the audience the Gigafactory is not where Tesla makes, makes its cars. It's, it's where it, it makes its batteries in partnership with Panasonic. And so the Gigafactory is a giant factory um, based in Nevada that houses both Panasonic and Tesla's battery operations. Um, Panasonic makes battery cells, which it sells in the same building to Tesla, which puts those cells into battery packs, which then gets shipped to Fremont and get put into the cars. And so Carl is working investigative security um, at the Gigafactory in Nevada in this time period where all of this copper is being stolen. Um, and then he uncovers that there is a fake badge operation at scale. So there's people making fraudulent badges so that criminal elements can come and go into the Gigafactory. Essentially, the factory is wide open. Um, and there's a lot of you know dangerous materials, flammable materials, uh, and so on being handled there. And so that alone should have been a, a serious red flag uh, internally. And then the story shifts to even more bizarre. Um, the, the Drug Enforcement Agency, apparently, allegedly, had given a tip to Tesla about wide-scale um, drug car Mexican cartel activity operating from within the Gigafactory. And, and Carl had begun to do sort of a standard investigatory con contact tracing and contact mapping and noticed that there was a lot of overlap between some of the individuals that were involved in the theft, um, some of the individuals that had either real or fake badges to access the Gigafactory and this drug activity and began to piece together, in his mind at least, what he thought was uh, an overarching sort of theory as to what's actually going on here. And it doesn't take too much of a uh, conspiracy theorist to connect the dots, if you know what I mean. Uh, and so as he is, um, and this is all sort of happening simultaneously, as he is beginning to pull the string on the cartel activity, he sort of develops a theory that um, some lithium precursors to the battery technology that's being operated at, at the Gigafactory, some lithium precursors to the batteries, um, is, a, is a valuable input into some drug synthesis, uh, in particular, um, the synthesis of Supermeth. Um, and, and he's making connections to the mines in Sonoma, Mexico, that Tesla and Panasonic are acquiring their, their lithium materials from. Uh, and it's around that time that, um, perhaps coincidentally, his access to uh, internal documents within Tesla is being limited and he's being moved out of Tesla um, ultimately sort of fired from Tesla, but hired from a contractor that is still serving Tesla. Um, he then goes on to file a whistleblower complaint with the SEC. That complaint, I believe, um, alleges that the theft and missing scrap materials was not properly accounted for in Tesla's financials in 2018. Um, he does the sensible thing in, in that he tells Tesla that he's filed this complaint. And the day after that he informed Tesla that he filed this complaint, he's confronted by Elon Musk directly at a, at a guard shed of all places. And um, if you read the complaint, a what sounds like a death threat was made, uh, something along the lines of, I don't care what you do with him, you can take him up to the hills and hide him. And then uh, he is subsequently fired uh, from the whole scene. And so that's sort of the first half that captures uh, episode 41 of the podcast and, and the, the story only gets stranger from there. Yeah, yeah, it really does. So let, let me just unpack a bit of that. And, and the, these are kind of the questions that, that I've got as I'm listening to it. Um, you know, firstly, 
was Carl working for Tesla when he put the whistleblower complaint in, or was he was he a contractor at that point? It's around the time where he was fired from Tesla, but given a, a new position at the contractor serving Tesla's security team. So if, if I had to guess sitting here, he was a contractor at that point. Right. So, you know, the obvious, the obvious pushback on this is always going to be disgruntled employee, right? The, the guy lost his job. And this is the easiest kind of uh, way for a company to characterize anyone that does this. Because generally these things tend to happen immediately after someone's left the company. Now, now I didn't get a sense of that from him. Did, did you get any sense of that? Did, did you speak to him about that, that off air? Because to me, that was the one thing that that wasn't dealt with in, in, the, in yeah. your conversation with him was the whole disgruntled employee angle. Yeah, so given the totality of what's happened to him, he is remarkably undisgruntled. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, he's um, gruntled. He's positively he's, gruntled. Yeah, he's positively gruntled. Um, <laughs> so I would say that I also did not get that impression. And look, as an executive, you know, I, I've seen all kinds of things. I've, I've seen um, people blow the whistle. I've been part of investigations. You understand how these things have been flow. And he didn't strike me as the, you know, the quintessential um, looking for a puddle in the in the supermarket to trip on so I can sue the owner <laughs> right, of the grocery right, store. You know. Right. Um, and also, I, he did share with me some documents that I think are, are pretty damning that we didn't have a chance to get into on the podcast, um, not the least of which was a very long email he wrote to Elon Musk on August 3rd, six days prior to his officially filing his SEC whistleblower complaint. Um, this is a pretty explosive email. He lays it all out. It's very clear he copied a bunch of powerful people inside of Tesla. Um, they knew or should have known the things he was alleging because he put it in writing. And that's the kind of thing that you do when you know that you're in trouble and, and the end is near. So he writes this email to Elon on August 3rd. Um, he files his whistleblower complaint on August 9th. Don't forget the 420 tweet is right in the middle of this on yeah, yeah. August 7th, I believe, um, 2018, where Elon goes on onto Twitter and, and fakes up the fix a buyout offer of Tesla, a funding secured. Um, so the, the chaos in Elon's life in August of 2018 is, is pretty remarkable. Um, and I don't know if those things are related, um, but he files his whistleblower complaint on the 9th. Um, by that point, he's almost certainly a contractor. Um, and then on the 29th, he informs Tesla that he filed this SEC whistleblower complaint, which is proper protocol, actually. Um, yeah. And that should have, at any other company on the planet, certainly would have been the case at any company that I've worked at in the past. Um, that should have triggered internal systems of controls where whistleblowers would be protected. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, a key part of Sarbanes-Oxley that flowed out of the last financial crisis is to enable and protect whistleblowers because the power misbalance between a powerful CEO and frontline employees who see the criminality going on was deemed by Congress to be you know, so out of whack that they needed to codify this in law. And in fact, um, a key section of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act makes it a felony. Um, to retaliate against identified whistleblowers. So he did everything properly. He's an investigator. He knows the rules. He filed his whistleblower complaint. He notified Tesla. And the next day, um, Elon confronts him and he is removed from his job and, um, you know, go hide him in the hills, is said. And to me, that's pretty clear-cut whistleblower retaliation. Um, you just don't do that. And, and actually, this might not seem like the biggest deal to most people, but to me, as a former executive, um, that really jumped out at me as, wow, like, I can't believe there are no controls inside of Tesla that would prevent the CEO from retaliating against a contractor 
whistleblower at his job level is pretty remarkable. Um, it, you you kind of have to be a corporate insider to understand the consequences of that. But uh, anybody else doing anything remotely close to that in any respectable company would be fired immediately. Can you imagine Mary Barra retaliating against a whistleblower at GM? Well, you know, it's interesting because you, when you talk about there being no controls in place at Tesla, you know, I, I would argue there probably are controls in place at Tesla, but they they stop one level too low. That that seems to be the problem here, right? It, it, this is a pattern that we've seen with with tweets and we've seen with you know pedo claims. We've seen all this stuff come come through, which is which is Elon. It's not Tesla, it, and there is a difference between Tesla and Elon, but unfortunately the man has very much become the company. And so when you when you look at uh, incidents like this, this to me, as I look at it, I, I don't equate this to be Tesla. I, I equate this to be Elon being vengeful. Elon, as you said, you, you confronting a whistleblower uh, and to hell with the rules. And, and it seems as though there aren't any adults in the room big enough and strong enough to actually slap him on the wrist, which in some ways I understand. In other ways, I just wonder w- what it would take for some of these guys to actually say, you know, I'm, I'm walking away from this. I mean, we've seen several do that. But how, how much of a problem is, is Elon to the company? And, and, and if he was away from that company, how different would things be? I, let me correct you a bit. And this comes again from personal experience. No respectable executive is going to persist in that kind of culture. And there are many executives there. And I would argue that means what you're getting is a distillation of the types of people that are either yes people and will never speak up or I think more correctly and more perversely people that take that behavior and mirror it. And so actually I think what's left at Tesla are only people in either of those two categories, unwilling to have the courage to stand up for what's right or demonstrated to Elon a willingness to manage in the same style. And there's a reason why you've not seen a senior executive of consequence join Tesla in forever. And all of their senior positions now are filled with people who were promoted from within. The types of people that survive and distill up into a culture created by somebody like him ends up basically, I think, pervasively filling every leadership position in the company. And so, yes, it is ultimately the responsibility falls from him. But if you're a leader at Tesla in 2018, watching all of this going on, and not only did you stay, but you progressed, what does that say about you? Yeah. So, so why is it you think, and I've often wondered this, why have we not seen any high level ex-Tesla employees come out after the fact, um, you know, there's probably non-competes or, or is this all just a big game about the stock price now and the money they're making is everybody just keeping quiet because you would think at some point there would be people who have vested their shares have sold them have made their money and are in a position to say okay you know what was happening there three four years ago when i was there i'm i'm surprised that we haven't seen that yet uh, who says we haven't well uh, okay I, that's I would true. Argue but, that but i'm talking about the, blown the whistle they may have blown the whistle at the sec and the sec's done nothing about it i've heard rumors to that effect i'm sure you've heard them as well there's a lot of senior leaders that were in and out of there pretty quickly, including a pretty well-known general counsel, yeah. Dane Butzwinkus. Um, who knows what he saw and what he said or what the former CFO, Jason Wheeler, has said. Uh, we just don't know. And it's not like the current um, Securities and Exchange Commission has a, a robust track record of uh, enforcing um, securities laws at high-profile companies. 
Um, so I, I would say that's a TBD grant. Um, I, I, I suspect that um, the following phenomenon is at work. Nobody wants to go first and everybody wants to go second. Right, right. And so when the pin is pulled, and I do think the stock price is the only thing that's keeping this thing together, which is why he's so maniacal about it, um, you're going to see an avalanche of ex-employees, reporters who have been sitting on stories or have had their stories spiked by editors. All those stories will suddenly come out. Um, it will be an avalanche. And um, that's my prediction. And I think contrary to the sort of like... Um, Hey, that's too big of a, of a, of a thing. Some, somebody would have come forward. Well, who will come forward? Look at what's happened to Carl Hansen. Look at what's happened to Marty Tripp. Look at what, look at what's happened to Pac Watson, uh, uh, or, or to Christina Balin or the other whistleblowers that have had their lives ruined. You know, on our podcast, we had, uh, Anna Watson. I, I call her Pac Watson because that's her Twitter yeah. handle. You know, she was a nurse, uh, a, a, a medical professional in Tesla's clinic and she, she, they, they called child protective securities on her in retaliation because she was highlighting uh, what she felt were very serious shortcomings in the treatment uh, of the employees that, that work at Tesla. Um, we gave her that platform. We've had Tesla customers on the show that um, Tesla basically ruined their home. Um, what's happened to them? Well, they've been harassed online and the goons have you know, started up the goon squad and, and uh, their lives are ruined. And so it's not an easy thing to be a whistleblower, especially when you don't think the authorities care. And the president of the United States comes out and says, we have to protect our genius. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's not clear. And if, and if you have made your money on the stock, what, what's in it for you? Go, you know, buy an island somewhere and, and live the rest of your life quietly. Um, nobody wants to be in this tornado. And, and you know, and I, we can talk about the things that have happened to me, which pale in comparison to what's happened to whistleblowers, but it's no easy thing to run Tesla charts. I would, you know, in hindsight, I probably wish I hadn't started it. Um, it's too late now, but you know, to go up against a powerful person who has money, ill-gotten or otherwise, and is willing to spend it to um, destroy his enemies is, is no small thing. Well, you, listen, you, you put a, a fascinating uh, thread out on Twitter a week or so ago, which, which, talked a little bit about that and I it was the first I'd seen of it and, and we haven't had the chance to talk about it so so as you said it's not on the same level as as Marty or Carl or Christine or any of these guys but but talk a little bit about your own experience because it, from what I saw it's very real and it's it's very threatening and it's incredibly disconcerting what's what's been happening yeah you know again when I started Tesla charts um, it was a social media experiment yeah. tied to tied to an investment um, I've been short Tesla. People should know that. I, I've been shorted predominantly through puts. Um, haven't traded it much this year as you just sort of stand back and watch the thing yeah. <laughs> go up 5% every day uh, unrelentingly. Um, but I, I'm financially interested in Tesla stock going down and that should be disclosed. Um, when Elon first came after the account, uh, famously on Father's Day in 2018, and he asked me, you know, how big is your short position? Just curious. Yeah. yeah. My answer to him was, as it is today, it's modest. Uh, thanks for asking. It's mostly a social media experiment. Um, came back at me a few more times. Well, that sort of set off a series of events that have just continued. So we've had my Twitter account was hacked a hundred times, let's say, unsuccessfully um, until basically I, I, I implemented far better security, you know, two-factor authentication and things like that. We've had my Apple account was hacked, uh, even though the email and phone number associated with my Apple account had nothing to do with the Twitter account. Uh, 
Um, now, you could say that's a coincidence. Maybe it is. Um, I've had multiple strange vehicles parked outside of my house with people in them. Um, on two occasions, I walked up towards those cars to try to confront them, and they drove off. Uh, on two other occasions, I noticed and um, recorded with my iPhone um, cars scoping my house. And, and you have to understand, without giving away too many details about me, I, I live at a location where it would be highly unusual for somebody to be randomly driving around my house. Right. And I live in a neighborhood where I know all the cars. And at least four times, I've personally observed people that I believe were scoping my property. I have children. Um, I have a wife. Um, we have a happy home. Um, I would appreciate it if my home wasn't disturbed. Um, and then um, I have professional associations in my real life. Um, Tesla Charts is not my job. Um, I, run a, I run a business with my business partner, um, Georgia. And um, a professional associate of mine who runs a, an entity uh, started receiving uh, unsolicited electronic communication, warning them about my involvement with their entity because I was Tesla Charts. Uh, and then four days later, their entire email system was hacked and somebody tried to wire, I think it was $50,000 from their internal bank accounts to an offshore bank account. Now they were unsuccessful um, because the people that run that organization happened to know I'm Tesla Charts and happened to agree with um, my assessment of Tesla and Elon and were on high alert after having received that unsolicited electronic communication warning them that their association with me was uh, ill-considered. Now, again, do I have proof that um, any of these things are tied to Tesla? Not certain, it's a lot of coincidences. Um, do I have proof that this isn't just maybe crazy fan, fanboys or fangirls of Tesla that are sort of trying to um, you know, get back at Tesla charts? I don't know. Uh, I just know that since I started this account, a continual series of very odd things um, have transpired. It's not yet escalated to the point where I feel unsafe, um, but it's pretty fascinating to live through. And, and again, it pales in comparison to um, what other whistleblowers have gone through. And frankly, the, since I put the threat out, it seems to have all stopped, yeah, which is an okay. inter interesting data point. And is frankly why I put the threat out, um, because I just wanted them to know um, that I have a platform and my intent is to use that platform to defend myself. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about what all this is about, right? Because as I said, everything gets pinned around the stock price. And there's a, there's a, there's a belief on the part of the bulls that everybody who's a skeptic of Tesla is short the stock every day of their lives and is constantly losing money and never does anything about that position. And everybody on the skeptic side assumes that all the bulls are just rabid fanboys that will buy anything of Musk and, and have no understanding of what they're doing. I mean, the truth, obviously, is somewhere in the middle. Now, for, for most of the bears, and I've, I've spoken to just about all the high-profile bears and, and, and compared notes to them and talked about trading and talked about the stock and stuff, it seems to me that for the last year, most of the shorts have barely been in the stock at all. They've, they've kind of realized that there's a time to back off. They're not backing off their opinions about the company or the man, but they're not necessarily putting money to work in that, in that scenario. Um, and, and that, to me, has been the differentiating factor from the bulls and the bears. The bears, it, it, I think for many of them, it began about money. 
um, and it's now become a point of principle. Whereas for the Bulls, I don't think it was ever about money. It was all about the mission. They just happened to have gotten rich along the way, and that's really just kind of fortified their, their not only their belief in the whole thing, but their determination to to see it through. Is that a fair characterization, do you think? Yeah, and I think um, we'll, we'll see how many of them stay rich. Um, I, I congratulate them all. I, I, I don't... The, one of the fascinating parts about this is why people care about the yeah. bear's short position. Like, why do you care whether I'm short the stock or made or lost money? Um, I could care less if Ross Gerber made a ton of money and sold out at the top. Good for him. He did well by his clients. He clearly got it right. I couldn't be more wrong. I've been very transparent about that. Um, of course, insanity is is pounding your head against a brick wall and expecting a different result. And you know, like you, I'd long ago stopped. Um, shorting the name in any kind of size. I dabbled a little bit. I think my last trade was a very small swing trade in, in June. Um, but I've, I've completely missed the, the run up to whatever we are now on a split adjusted basis, $2,400 a share, which is just amazing. Um, the sort of focus on the stock price, um, I think is critical to, to the narrative and we can talk about that, but by and large, the vast majority of bulls I know either aren't shorting it or got on the, the call gravy train and started making money on the way up. But I've learned a very valuable lesson from our mutual friend and, and a guy a guy we had on our podcast, Mark Cahotis, which is there's a time to short and um, you'll know it. <laughs> and, yeah. And now is nowhere near the time to short. Um, and in fact, if I look at my personal trading results this year, um, and again, trading is a very small part of what I do and it's just sort of a, enough sort of like skin in the game to make it interesting. Um, almost all of the money I've made this year is shorting stocks just as they go bankrupt. And you could miss the stock declined from $40 to $1.50. But if you can do your homework and study the distressed debt and do your own analysis of when coupon payments are due, you can make just as much money shorting a stock from $1.50 to 20 cents as you do from 40 to $1.50. Yeah. And um, I learned that listening to some of your podcasts and also becoming friends with Cahotis and learning how he shorts and sort of just developing my own niche. And so, you know, between that and and gold, I've, I've made way more money this year you know, in the stock market, then I've lost trading Tesla. Um, but I've lost trading Tesla and I wish I hadn't. If I had all the money back that I, I had lost over the last couple of years trading Tesla, I'd be slightly happier. Um, right. but, but I don't have it. Um, but it doesn't matter to me. Like I, I've, I would never risk an amount of money that would be material to my lifestyle, which means I can never make a material amount of money that would change my lifestyle. Um, and it's not really been about the stock from the beginning, all the way back to my answer to Elon in, in, 2018. It's a modest position. Thanks for asking. Um, none of your business, actually, but uh, it is what it is. And then there's this whole weird phenomenon in the financial press, um, and the bulls certainly played. Uh, the, yeah, they they play to that, which is somehow it's evil to be short a company and it's virtuous to be long one, even if that company's a fraud. Um, I would argue that short selling is just as legitimate um, and more difficult than long selling that the average short seller has a pretty sharp IQ. Um, they might not be too smart to, to be a short seller for a living in, in the type of environment we're in, but it's actually harder to make money shorting stocks. It's easy to just set it and forget it on the long side. But there is no, nothing evil about short selling. Um, and just like there's nothing evil about buying stock. And to me, there's no difference between a um, short and distort campaign and a pump and dump. Both are wrong. One happens to use short selling and the other happens to use the long side. Um, but if you follow the securities laws, um, there's absolutely no difference between selling a stock short that you think is overvalued and buying a stock 
long that you think is um, undervalued. To me, they're the same thing. Oh, well put. We, you, you mentioned there the narrative. So let's just talk about the narrative. And, th- and this wraps in the narrative around Elon, the narrative around what he's uh, you know, supposedly doing for mankind. But it also involves the, the narrative being created and fostered by the, the financial media. Because, I mean, I've been absolutely amazed at the coverage that, that both the company and the man have gotten. I mean, it's, it's either they've got PR guys doing a truly extraordinary job or everybody in the financial media is, is totally captive to this and is either in on this whole thing or completely blind to basic questions that guys like David Einhorn are asking and not getting answers to that anyone with, with the kind of financial uh, background that a lot of these journalists claim to have would normally see them may asking the same kind of questions that the shorts are. Yeah. So I've become a huge fan, thanks to you, of um, Ben Hunt and uh, the Epsilon Theory and, and his newsletter and, and his podcast appearances. And his focus on the narrative was really sort of an aha moment for me. So what's the narrative on Elon? Here it is in one sentence. Elon is a crazy genius that is trying to save the world. Okay? Yep. I would argue neither of those is true. Um, And so if a narrative is so prolific in its saturation in society, like Elon is a crazy genius trying to save the world, um, it has to have been the consequence of what I would call planned propaganda. And so let's take them apart. Let me ask you a serious question, and I I mean this in all seriousness. Have you, and you're well read, you've studied the Tesla name, you've written about it, you've done documentaries. Have you ever once heard him say anything intelligent? Uh, no, I mean, honestly, I, I haven't. Um, okay. <laughs> now, the, the, I've, I've heard stuff that he said that a, a small part of me thinks, well, maybe that's above my pay grade. But really, yeah. I then think, no, you're just trying to, you're trying to create something here because it doesn't make any sense. And, you, and you're trying to figure out yeah. why you feel so stupid. Well, so he's, I'm a trained scientist. And I've talked to, you know, my expertise was in the solar field and he's never said anything intelligent about solar technology. In fact, I would argue uh, he said many dumb things about solar. Um, Every expert that he has, you know, in the verticals that he's participating in, autonomy, automotive manufacturing, tunneling, now neuroscience, um, they would all agree they've never heard him say anything profound or intelligent ever, not once. And in fact, when you listen to the earnings calls, actually, sometimes he doesn't even sound lucid. Like it's difficult for him to string together cohesive thoughts. Now, on the flip side, he has said many profoundly dumb things about technology. And I'm just going to say it. Like some of the things he has said about technology are ludicrous uh, on their face, almost to the point where you wonder whether he's joking. Um, But he's not. He's being very serious. And so he says things all the time that are provably false or unintelligent. And yet we are to be told and and we are to believe through this saturation propaganda that he is the smartest person on the planet. Now, I don't know what you would call somebody who never says anything intelligent and routinely says dumb things, but I wouldn't call him the smartest person on the planet. Um, And in fact, I would call them below average intelligence. And I could tell you in my former career, as you know, um, I managed more than a thousand scientists at a time. Um, I like to joke back then that I, I made a market in genius. I hired, developed, promoted, 
many, many brilliant PhD scientists from MIT, Caltech, Berkeley, Stanford, you name it. And I'm not saying you have to have a PhD from those places to be brilliant, but getting one from there is a pretty good sign. Um, I know what raw intellectual horsepower looks like, and I know what a genius is. And this man ain't that. Like, this is actually quite the opposite. Um, if you never say anything intelligent and routinely say things that are unintelligent, that doesn't make you the world's smartest genius. So that's one. Let's take the other half of the narrative. He is out to save the world. Um, he commutes to work in a jet. And you and I can have a whole separate discussion, and I think we will someday, about environmental science and the profound principles required to truly sort of create a high standard of living for humankind at minimal damage to the planet. Um, battery electric vehicles, while somewhat beneficial in narrow ways, are far from the best allocation of our limited resources to impact you know, a high standard of living on the planet at minimal damage to the planet. Um, it's easy to demonstrate that plug-in hybrid electric vehicles are a far superior alternative to BEVs. But the guy, like everything, he literally is probably, if you Googled it, he's probably the executive that flies most on a private jet on the planet. Now, how is that leadership, right? Um, and then on top of that, the cult, um, any other electric vehicle, they attack. So if you're truly genuinely concerned about the planet, why do you care whether or not the Volkswagen ID3 will be successful or not? Right. Um, and then, you know, it, it's just one thing after another with this, with this guy and his sort of environmental, um, you know, bona fides. It, it, he never actually, if you think about the problem of environmental impact on the planet, there's something called, you know, cost curve. How do you get the biggest bang for the buck, right? Um, electric vehicles just aren't high on the list. There's far easier, more profound things we can do as a society to, you know, increase everyone's lifestyle at minimal damage to the planet. And then, then if you just look at the, the conditions around Fremont and the OSHA violations that Ed um, Niedemeyer has described in the paint shop and the trash heap around the tents where the cars are made, um, everywhere you look, this is the opposite of what it's proclaimed to be. Now, I think this is by design and part of the con. And I think crazy genius for the environment is the con. And let's do a thought experiment that proves that. Imagine the CEO of an oil and gas company faked a buyout offer on Twitter. What would happen to them? Yeah, well, look, we all know what would happen, right? I mean, they, they, they would not get a slap on the wrist. And, They'd be in uh, jail. Yeah, exactly right. right. And so the fact that he is EV genius, you know, EV genius, EV Jesus. Um, they call him electric Jesus on Twitter. Um, he's the genius who needs to be protected because he's trying to save the environment. Well, if that's all a previously planned defense mechanism against basically committing fraud, it's beautiful and it works. So he can call a guy a pedo um, and get away with it because he's a crazy genius. Um, CNBC can cheerlead for his various, you know, fraudulent activities because he's trying to save the planet. And the classic counter to the, the, the bears on the name from the bulls is you don't care about the environment. Well, let me ask you a question. How can you claim to care about the environment, but always brag about zero to 60 times? Right. <laughs> right. How, how does getting somewhere slightly faster and more dangerously help the planet? So to counter the, the bulls, I personally, and, and, somewhat famously on Twitter, I tweet about it all the time, I bought a Chevy Volt. It is a very affordable, 
nondescript plug-in hybrid electric vehicle that gets 50 miles on the battery before a backup engine kicks in so I don't have to worry about range anxiety. The vast majority of my days, I don't drive 50 miles. It plugs into my wall at night and slowly charges overnight while I sleep. And in so doing, for a very modest amount of money compared to the cost of a Tesla, I have eliminated 98% of my emissions from um, gasoline. Now, I've not eliminated all my emissions by charging it with electricity because the electricity is generated with fossil fuels and that's a topic for another day. But same story with the Teslas. Um, and so for the solution exists, and by the way, it is not a very fast car. Like I, I'm not going to be drag racing in my Chevy Volt. I am someone who cares about the environment and I bought a car with a modest amount of money that solves the problem. The, the technology exists. Zero to 60 time proves that the people that are buying Tesla don't actually care about the environment. They care about appearing to care about the environment. Yeah, look, I, th I think that's, that's pretty clear to me too. I, I've, I've come to that same conclusion. But, but let's talk about how this narrative is perpetuated and, and the amount of buy-in. Now, is, do you think it is really just a, an extension of the times we live in where it's, it's woke to be pro-Elon and pro-Tesla and no one dares to actually call him out on it because, of, because you're, you're seen to be one of those bad guys? Or is this, this, this idea of it being protected, does this go deep into the media to make sure that, that, um, that uh, articles are killed? I mean, I know you've had some, some fascinating experiences with, with search engine optimization. Yeah, it's, I think it's all of the above. Um, so the, the legs of the stool all need to support each other. Um, it's easy to dismiss short selling because short sellers are bad. Um, it's easy to dismiss Tesla critics because they don't care about the environment. And also, it's very clear that if you accumulate a lot of money, however you got it, and you're willing to recycle some of it back to expensive white shoe lawyers and paid PR firms, you can protect yourself. Um, and that's what's going on here. The SEC, you know, the regulatory permissiveness of the current regime, I think is a key input into all of this. And really this went into turbo drive after he got off the hook on the 420 tweet. I mean, you can't have a more blatant version of securities fraud for all no, the world to no. see. And the pretzels that Jay Clayton, we should name names, the pretzels that Jay Clayton twisted himself into to let him off the hook were remarkable. So what message did that send the world? Um, we had Cuppy on our podcast and we had a long discussion about fraud creates alpha. Um, it's very clear that there are no consequences for committing fraud. Um, as Marco Hodes would say, who's going to stop it? So it's not just Tesla. They just happen to be, I believe, a very um, pioneer in the space and a prolific you know, user of the advantages presented to them or created by them. But if you look um, recently, you know, the Valiant CEO, the ex-CEO Valiant got off with a, a slap on the wrist. You couldn't have a more profound mm -hmm. example. Um, and he got nothing. Um, he kept most of the money he made uh, and um, is living a great life. Didn't even have to admit um, that he did anything wrong. Wrongdoing, yeah. Yeah. Um, we see it over and over. You look at Kodak. Uh, like you and Ben Hunt talked about on your, on your last podcast, which was great. Like the grift series of, of uh, Epsilon Theory has been fantastic and frustrating all at the same time. And you see it. And so, you know, not to get too altruistic on you, but I do believe that the Tesla story is a metaphor for a deeper cultural rot that is driving inequality in the country 
um, enabled by a combination of loose monetary policies on the part of the Fed and critically, very permissive regulatory regime where we have the revolving door of you know SEC uh, employees angling for jobs when they leave government at, at the same white shoe law firms that are representing the types of Elon Musk. But this, you know, this, this, this is this has been going on for a while now, and I, I constantly find myself rewatching that George Carlin um, bit about, you know, this is, it's a big club and you ain't in it, and it, and it feels that way now. But it feels as though the, the, the wrongdoing is is achieving the kind of scale that truly boggles the mind. You, know, you kind of think that these things happen in darkness in the shadows, but for some reason. Lately, it seems like the bigger you are and the more public you can be with this stuff, the safer you are. Well, let's just take Elon. So Elon got away with 420. And after having gotten away with it, went on 60 Minutes and said, I do not respect the SEC. Mm -hmm. Got away with that. Um, and then recently went on Twitter and instructed Jay Clayton to perform oral sex on him. I'm um, saying it politely. Yes, you are. Um, more polite than Elon did. What, what message does that send to other aspiring fraudsters as it pertains to how they should be afraid of the SEC? There was a time where the existence of an SEC investigation would cause a stock to crater. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now it causes stocks to fly. Hey, we have a CEO willing to commit fraud and we know that the SEC is not going to do anything. So let's put our money behind this guy or gal. It's mostly guys, interestingly. Um, but, you know, if oh, I shouldn't say that, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. Um, but by and large, you know, today in this market, if the market thinks that you're committing fraud, you're probably going to get a bump in your stock price. Now, this, this is, I believe, not to get too philosophical, um, the massive gulf of inequality that we're seeing is an input into, certainly doesn't help some of the struggles we're having as a society, I believe. Um, and I don't know why Wall Street thinks this is ultimately going to end well. So for example, just take what happened this week with uh, NIO, this Chinese electric mm -hmm. vehicle startup. Um, that's a shell of a company. It's a Chinese ADR. Uh, we're in the middle of phase two of the China hustle. Um, none of these Chinese ADR stocks, I think, are legitimate. And Wall Street continues for a small vig continues to enable US-based investors to give money to senior leaders of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, the old expression from Lenin uh, is, you know, when we need the rope from the capitalists to hang them, they'll sell it to us. Yeah. Um, I, it's outrageous to me that Morgan Stanley would underwrite a raise for NIO this week to the tune of $1.8 billion, where the stated intent of that money is to basically pay off local Chinese investors. It's not even to help the company grow. Uh, and, you know, here you go. It's, uh, they upsized it, 100, 100 million shares at $17 a share and change. And um, there you have it. And as long as they collect their fees, uh, underwriters are willing to bring anything to the market without concern for what ultimately happens after the race. And I don't think that's healthy. I, and while I know it's not healthy, um, it might be healthy in the short term for some of the bankers, um, and God bless them. But for the country, you know, a, for, this isn't capitalism, by the way, and I understand why people on the left would argue that capitalism is failing us. I would argue that this isn't capitalism. It's a perversion of capitalism. And capitalism isn't libertarianism. You need a very strong regulatory governmental body that is a pure referee that calls balls and strikes as, as they see them. 
Um, that's not what's happening today. What's happening today is anything goes. I mean, it took Jay Clayton going on CNBC to stop uh, Hertz from doing the first ever initial bankrupt offering. Yeah. Um, it's really remarkable. That was apparently the line too far. So now we know where the line is. Um, there will be no consequences for the attempt. There should be. Um, all of the people involved in that have professional obligations to the investor community that in the past would have caused them to be shunned for even attempting to do it. Um, but today, in today's market, um, if you commit fraud, your stock will go up. Is there an argument to say that, that th and, and again, as someone who's spent his entire career inside financial markets, I, I, to me, it's obvious just how fragile the financial system is right now. I mean, it's, in, it's never been more fragile in my 35 odd years of doing this. Um, and obviously, optically, if you haven't spent a lot of time immersed in it, it looks on the outside like it's, things have never been stronger. You know, markets are all time high, shaking off the pandemic, shaking off the poor economics. Have we reached the point where those inside understand that to, to do anything that would cause markets to reassess themselves, to reassess companies the size of Tesla, would actually be far too dangerous to do because of the fallout. And so you've kind of got to hold your nose and let him get away with it. Well, I, I think that, you know, escape velocity and too big to fail are the terms that I've used to describe the attempt. That's what clearly is being attempted here, which is every single day the stock goes up, there's massive out of the money call buying, get bigger, get bigger, get bigger. Notice he hasn't raised, notice he hasn't bought anybody with this so-called valuable currency. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no question that the attempt to try to, you know, um, use aggressive accounting, let's be generous, use aggressive accounting to produce four consecutive quarters of quote unquote profit to try to get themselves into the S&P. This is all part of a, I think, a premeditated plan to become too big to fail in an effort to achieve escape velocity on what's going on here. But I would make a finer point to what you just said. And, and you, you will know this because you wrote about it in your latest brilliant um, things that make you go, hmm, newsletter. The markets actually aren't going up. Um, a few very high profile, very large stocks are going up. And in an, an analogy to the vast chasm that we're seeing in the um, wealth inequality among individuals, we're seeing the exact same phenomenon happen in the stock market. So unless you're big, you can't issue bonds. But if you're big enough, you can't do anything wrong. And so you're seeing simultaneously the indices are, are, are reaching all time highs, but the breadth of that move is very, very weak. And Concurrent with the indices at an all-time high, we're seeing record levels of bankruptcies. Why is that? I think that's because, um, per Mike Green uh, and and your sort of brilliant podcast uh, on the End Game with him, I think it was episode three. Um, we're seeing more and more of the flows going to fewer and fewer of the names, and we're seeing these massively silly valuations going on. Like, there's no you say what you want about Tesla, you cannot say that a car company is worth 1.3 million dollars for every car that it sold in the past year. No, it just, it just doesn't. I mean, when the history books are written, everyone will laugh and say, ha, 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 that was the easiest short ever. Well, in the moment, it ain't. But in the long run of history, it's very clear what's going on here. But the underbelly of the market is right on the edge. And then I, I gave some thought after reading your letter last night and in preparation for today. Um, one of the big phenomenon that we're seeing today is this flight of people from the cities, right? And so you're seeing a boom in housing, Um so in aggregate, you're seeing higher than expected economic activity because people are rearranging the way they live on a scale that is unbelievable. That's a sugar rush. Um, so it's a pulse, 
But on top of that, it means big swaths of the economy are going to be permanently impaired in a way that we haven't even begun to conceive yet. And the follow-on consequences of that are going to be pretty interesting to watch. So just one small example. You can't have a housing boom in the suburbs without the complete collapse of the commercial real estate market in the cities. Right. Just can't. Both can't be true. You can't have Zoom at an all-time high and all the airliners we have today continue. Like, they both can't be true. People are learning to live in the new reality post-COVID. Um, that new reality includes many, many, many fewer people in the cities, far fewer flyers, and we have an entire massive architecture of equity and debt and derivatives tied to the part of the economy that's not booming that we're not seeing yet reflected in the realization of the consequences of that. And so when I see, you know, and God bless Tony Greer, he called this wonderfully in his great letter, um, TG Macro, um, the home builders index soaring. Well, the concurrent trade to that is the, you know, the commercial mortgage-backed security market is going to be collapsing. And the airliners are not coming back. I've made this point loudly on Twitter for a yep. very long time. I've talked to many, many executives. I know lots of CEOs. And to a person, people aren't traveling anymore for business. And business represents 75% of the profit for airliners. We have too many planes. The fact that we have too many planes has profound consequences for the tens of billions of dollars of debt on the books of pension funds across the country tied to airliners and their suppliers. Like there's real changes going on. And, and in the aggregate number, the top line number, it sort of masks what's going on in the underbelly. The consequences of the rot in the underbelly are gonna be profound. And we can put off recognizing them as long as we'd like, and we are, and it seems like the intent is at least put them off until the end of the election. Um, but the exact same thing is happening in the market. So the, the stock market leaders are profoundly overvalued but you're seeing a string of well-known names going bankrupt every week, um, already at a record pace. And that's because, you know, the winners and losers have been chosen. And then when you combine the two at the interface between who's getting capital allocated to them and what's going on in the real economy, I think there's a massive misallocation of capital based on the new economy that we're, we're building. Um, there's no way that all the money that's going to be burnt chasing Tesla up as it comes down, which it inevitably has to, uh, couldn't have been better spent. Yeah, no, <clears throat> um, beautifully put. I have to say that's um, that's uh, that's exactly I think how I see the world. Yeah, it's interesting that we've seen obviously in this last week, American Airlines talk about laying nineteen thousand people off the day um, the day the furlough uh, provisions end, and that's that's going to be the way of this. And and so at this point, I don't think, in fairness, I don't think. The Trump administration, um, or for that matter, the Biden administration, should they win, can withdraw this stimulus. You know, we are we are in this now for the long run. I mean, there's 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 just no easy way to do it. And the day you say, well, that's it, no more government funding for for your employees, the whole thing goes down. And so we're you know, we're back to that too big to fail. Except this time, it's the economy. So 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 I, I think all that is exactly right. Which which tells you what a perfect moment in time it is to try and pull off um, what Elon has been trying to pull off. But, you know, amidst all the all the promises that have been made in terms of products to be delivered, robo-taxis and, you know, full self-driving and, and the obvious fraud of, of charging money for that up front, not delivering it, and then talking about having to rewrite it from the ground up. You know, there, there's, there's, if you dig into this thing, it's, it's, it's so ridiculously fraudulent, it's hard to even... 
It's hard to even breathe sometimes. But this week, um, you know, I've, I've been wondering what it will be, what outrageous promise, what outrageous fantasy is going to be the thing that maybe finally tips things over. And, uh, you know, I feel like this week we may have gotten a little closer to seeing it when when they wheeled out Gertrude. What did you make of the, the Neuralink um, <laughs> demonstration? Uh, you know, as a veteran of many Elon demonstrations and reveals, <laughs> um, this was, I think, it crossed, it crossed the Rubicon of ethics in a way that is profoundly offensive. Um, my, my father died of Parkinson's and my favorite grandfather died of uh, Alzheimer's. Um, I, I, I have an interest in neurology. I'm not an expert, but uh, in one day of researching and talking to people that I know in the field, um, this was no different than the solar shingle reveal or the full self-driving reveal or the battery swap scam all the way back in 2013 that Ed Niedermeyer has done such a great job of, of yeah. deconstructing. Um, to promise desperately sick people that somehow the great genius Elon Musk who wants to save the world is going to invent out of whole cloth a technology that is their salvation. Um, any journalist watching that reveal that continues to enable this con um, should be ashamed of themselves. It is. It probably won't matter, Grant. I mean, I, who knows what's going to be the thing that ultimately causes this thing to, to unravel. Um, I doubt it'll be that, but it should be if there's any justice in the world. Um, that was snake oil of the highest order presented in the most offensive and transparently fake way. Um, and the legion of people that he has created false hope for, I feel really terrible about. Um, this is offensive. There's no other way to say it. It's gross. Um, and, and shame on everyone involved. Well, what, I, what I found was interesting about this particular one, and, I, and I, I tend to spend a lot of time watching the reactions to these things because you can, you can normally understand whether uh, the desired outcome is actually occurring or if things haven't quite gone the way that they perhaps thought they would when they, they conjured up a stunt like this. And it definitely seemed to me this time around, given the amount of coverage I've seen over you know, breathless coverage I've seen over battery swaps and shingle reveals and full self-driving and robo-taxis in the past. This one was definitely different. I didn't see the kind of coverage for this that it almost felt to me as though the people who would normally write about this stuff looked at it and thought, you know, I can't even think of a way to write about this in, a, in an effusive way. I'm just going to keep quiet. You know what I mean? I just, I just didn't feel like that that massive tailwind of media puff pieces surrounded this Neuralink demonstration. So let's imagine you're a reporter with that feeling. How do you feel about all the other puff pieces you've written around similar BS? Um, yeah, but, but look, that's a process. That's a process, right? The, 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 the scales yeah. fall from your eyes, and then, then you, of course, you're going to deny absolutely to yourself that you could have been taken in by this guy on other things. There's no way you're going to admit that day one. I know. I don't, it, you know, it, well, I see, it's an interesting question. I've thought about this a lot, obviously, because the people involved here have intelligence. Jim Cramer's a smart guy. Um, you know, Dan Ives, Jonas, Adam Jonas, they're all intelligent people. They can't not see what you and I see. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be intelligent. Um, and so I have this image in my mind of, of God bless them, 
seems like a nice enough fellow, Phil LeBeau from CNBC, standing in front of the boring tunnel out in California, pretending as though taking a used tunneling machine and making a sewer tunnel and putting cars on skates and driving one mile along it is somehow profoundly, um, you know, an impressive technological feat. Like at what point in the, I'm going to fly to California and stand in front of a sewer tunnel, do you might begin to wonder that maybe this isn't quite as, as impressive as you thought? Well, that, um, that's, so that's very true. Like this well, that, is the first time. It's just the most ethically outrageous. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, it, you know, and that's the line that I think it crossed, which is everybody knows somebody that struggled with dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. It's, it's, it's tragically a, a very common thing. Um, and by the way, like you can go to Twitter. There isn't a, a respectable neuroscientist on the planet that says there was anything consequential there. Um, no, quite no. The I mean, as I said, yeah, I, 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 that's what that's what that's what surprised <laughs> me is that the, the the complete lack of anybody. So why really do saying, it? Why do it? That's the part well, I don't understand. Why? Yeah, why I, would you stub your toe like this? It was it's an unforced error. He's winning. Does he well, want to get yes, caught? Yes, he is. But I, look, I mean, we, you and I could speculate all day about is this designed to cover someone else up? Do they need the headlines, or are they hoping to get headlines from this? That will, I mean, we will we'll never know, right? Can he, does he feel ever more bulletproof and the ability to say anything even more outrageous? Possibly. Who knows? Does he just love the attention and and people yeah. thinking he's this guy saving the planet? I I, I don't know, but when, but when I when I think about that example you used of, of Phil LeBeau, today, the media is all about one thing. It's not about communicating information. It's about generating views. Period. That's it. There, it's, it's very difficult to find any media content that is out there, except in the independent world, in, in the podcast world, that sort of stuff where you, where you have a platform, you're not beholden to you know, you know, big, big whoever. Um, and Phil LeBeau standing in front of a, a, a tunnel saying, well, this is underwhelming. It's just like a hole in the ground with a car on a, on a trolley. It, there's no splashy segment in that for CNBC. And so I think these guys have just become co-opted in, in, okay, I've got to make something entertaining and I've got to make it something people want to watch. And realistically, the only two ways you can do that are to make it absolutely sparkly and spangly and promising and, and hype it to the moon or rip the whole thing down so that people you know, Woodward and Bernstein style, so that people are gripped by that narrative. They're the only two options you have. That's the only two things that people are going to want to read. They don't want something that's kind of vanilla because there's somebody else on the other channel that they'll go to. So what choice do you have? It's it's tough to tear it down because that takes acts of courage. It takes acts of considerably impressive journalism. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes all the things that you and I know it takes. Whereas... You've got a tunnel, you've got a big figure that everybody knows telling you what a great thing it is. Parroting that and amping it is a surefire way to get people to engage. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. And, and a proper functioning capital market requires strong regulatory oversight and a robust, vibrant, skeptical media. And we have yeah. neither of those today. No, I, I agree. And, and, and so, you know, it, it, it really behooves us to try and figure out a, what might bring this down, and, and more importantly, I guess, when. You know, I, I've thought for a long time now, as I've watched this, not, not just with Tesla, but with, with other examples of this, uh -huh. I've, I've wondered and I've watched and I've, and I've waited for that moment 
where to that point I just made, there is more there's more uh, interest to be gained from tearing these things down because it, it'll happen. There's a point where if you're a journalist, tearing this thing to the ground is going to be the way you get the viewers because they're bored with all the pr- pronouncements. They're bored with all the you know, fancy predictions about cool futures. They're bored of it. And what they really want is a scandal. And I've been waiting for that to happen for some time and it hasn't yet. And, and, and I wonder if we're any nearer it or not. I get the feeling we are, yes. but I don't know. Yeah, well, I, so the analogy, I think, and, and is, is the Wirecard situation in Germany. And, yeah, and perfect example. A, a profound situation. And, and we had, um, by luck, a string of guests leading into the collapse of Wirecard on, on TC's Chartcast. We had Roddy Boyd, who's done an amazing, as usual, yeah. amazing investigative journalism work on the Wirecard name. We had uh, Francine McKenna, who's a brilliant, you know, um, accounting analyst and, and likes to write about accounting shenanigans over at her great newsletter, The Dig. And then um, literally days before the collapse, we had a brilliant short seller on the podcast named Gabriel Grego, who literally called the day uh, of the collapse um, four or five days before it happened. Um, but then you go back and you read the history and you see the very first accusation of fraud against Wirecard was in 2008. Eight, yeah, yep. And those people were arrested. <laughs> like the, not only were they ignored, um, they were punished. Um, and it's the same thing that we're seeing today with whistleblowers. And so you wonder... It's all obvious in hindsight, right? Oh, look, why? Well, what happened with Wirecard? They ran out of money. That's it. They ran out of money. Um, and um, there's a long story to be told there, but, um, and not to get into too many details, ironically, SoftBank plays a bit of a positive role <laughs> in this. <laughs> um, but essentially, they needed their auditors to sign off on the 2019 financials or else a series of loans that they had taken out would immediately become due. And thanks to the ongoing pressure of short sellers and really brave skeptical journalists, EY, the auditor in charge here, ultimately decided they couldn't sign off on those books. And the stock collapsed in a matter of days. And um, as Cahotas famously says, um, this is not about accounting and missing money. And if, you know, the German power structure and regulatory regime would love nothing more than for this to be an accounting scandal. This is a fraud based on money laundering and massive illegal activities reaching the highest levels of the German and European elite. And it's going to be covered up. And the reason why it persisted for as long as it did was because of that fact. It is a money laundering operation for the worst elements of society that has contaminated the highest elements of German and European society. And if we don't recognize that and clean house, you'll learn nothing and you'll create a fall person, um, somebody to take the fall for this, and they'll sweep it under the rug, and they'll just figure out how to get away with it better next time. And to circle it all the way back to Tesla and why there's such a passionate group of really, I think, intelligent, hardworking people trying to expose this fraud, very similar to Wirecard, it's because they don't want to live in a society uh, and in a market, they don't want to participate in a market where that type of fraud that happened at Wirecard not only persists, but propagates. Right. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. I mean, and, and, I, and I think you're, you're right. I think that's what I've been waiting for. And, and to me, there is only one fall guy here, right? There is only one possible fall guy with Tesla. It, yeah. it, it, just, it just cannot be anybody but Elon. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 maybe he's smart enough to realize that at least. And that's why he's trying to embed himself into, 
know, the space program and Neuralink sure. and you know, there, there, there could be a good reason for that. But, but sure. ultimately, I suspect, as I've suspect, suspected for a long time, it's just, as I say, it's just taken longer than I thought, um, th this will unravel and it will unravel quickly when it does because the same way we've seen with Wirecard, once it became obvious, every single journalist is now writing the, you know, the, the hit piece on Wirecard. They're all at it now because yeah. it, the, the, the jay goes out the tree, as, as yeah. Cahodis likes to say. Piranhas without courage. Yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's it in a nutshell. But, you know, as I said, there are listening to your podcast and, and reading a lot of that uh, stuff that Marty Tripp dumped on, um, on the internet, it's, I mean, there, there is one hell of a story to be told by someone. There's a Pulitzer Prize waiting for whoever's got the balls to step in and, and write this. And, and it, to me, it's little things like this. It's little things like uh, what Marty did. It's little things like your podcast. This story is starting to gain a little bit of traction. And, and I'm sure uh, the work you and Georgia did this last week in, in bringing Carl's story and the way you did it, which was, I have to say, just an exceptional job you guys did. I mean, Carl was great, but you, I thought you stewarded that remarkably well. It was a very difficult thing to do. That It's things like that that tend to start pricking up the ears of the people who can make a difference to this stuff. Um, and suddenly the fact that this goes right the way to the top of what I don't know, but it goes a long way above – becomes a plus, not a minus, in terms of going after this. Because suddenly, if, you, if you've got your teeth into this story, it's not, oh, my God, I might bring down X, Y, or Z. It's, you know what, if I do this right, I can bring down X, Y, and Z. And that often is the change that's needed to, to, to get these stories covered in the right way and not just the kind of fawning, sycophantic way that we've seen so far. Yeah, I hope you're right. And I do appreciate the compliments. It's a, it's a wonderful team. And, um, you know, we did our very best to present and, you know, we didn't even get into the second episode, episode 42, the audience will have to go and listen to it. Um, because the story only gets weirder from where we left it off with the cartels. Um, we dive into the Marty trip situation, whistleblower retaliation. We do, we dive into, um, the FBI investigation into illegal hacking that Carl participated in FBI agents in his home for weeks at a time documenting wide-scale illegal hacking of personal devices on, on the part of um, the ex-Uber security team that Elon personally hired into Tesla. And then the subsequent um, cover-up of that investigation right around the time where Trump came out and said, we have to protect our genius. And um, one wonders whether he wasn't specifically talking about not taking any action on the crimes that Carl um, documented so thoroughly. Well, again, I mean, and, and it's perfect. We, we're going to wrap up now and I, and just so that there is plenty for people to get their teeth into on the second one. But, you know, just, just listening to all that stuff and, and, and hearing this FBI investigation get killed, you know, it, it, it's, it's really depressing. Uh, and, you know, and I, I spoke to you about this after you'd recorded the interview. I hadn't heard it at the time. And I, I kind of asked you what your takeaways were. And, and I was somewhat taken aback. Just tell people what your what your feelings were after recording it and, and how that's changed now you've put it together and put it out there and, and you've seen the reaction to it. Uh, I felt utterly dejected, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I'm an immigrant to the country. I've, I've been very blessed. I've been very fortunate. I've been very privileged. I've lived an amazing life. Um, I have amazing friends. I have an amazing family. I have an amazing business partner. Um, I felt utterly dejected uh, as a patriot 
as somebody who cares about the country, about where the country's heading. And that, I'm not trying to sound all, you know, Pollyanna about it. Um, it's a genuine feeling. Um, to see a guy like Carl destroyed. You know, this is a guy who was in the 82nd Airborne, and as you'll hear um, in the second episode, episode 42, um, was reduced to getting food at a food bank uh, at the bottom of his experience being a Tesla whistleblower. Um, what kind of society do we have where, you know, somebody like him gets treated the way he does and somebody like Elon gets treated the way he does? Um, it's not a good one. Uh, I, I know that this isn't the only time it's happened and, you know, I'm not trying to like make it a bigger thing than it was, but personally, after spending three and a half hours with the guy and Georgia and I and Evac and Paul spending probably in total 40 hours editing it into two very listenable, high quality podcasts, um, you can't help but feel anything other than dejected. Um, and so I would tell you that it's difficult to keep going. Um, almost every day I think about just deleting the Tesla charts, Twitter account and shutting it down and going about my business. I, you know, before Tesla, I was considered relatively intelligent. Um, before Tesla, most of the things I did worked. Um, I can go about life 2.0 and create businesses with my team and, you know, create a lot of value and do a lot of good in society and complete and total anonymity. And there's rarely a day goes by where I don't wonder whether that wouldn't be the best approach. Um, but then the flip side is I have children and I'm creating a permanent electronic record of what that thought and what that did in the moment. And there's going to be plenty of people when this whole, when this entire thing collapses that are going to claim to have had large roles in it um, that won't. Uh, but I'm proud of what I and the team uh, and the rest of many of the Tesla Q community and, and yourself um, have done, both on this name in particular and what it means for the broader society in general. And, and so that's kind of just what keeps me going in that. And I'm stubborn um, and I don't like to lose. And um, I certainly don't like to lose to people like him. Um, but there's no question, like you can't sit down with a guy like him for as long as we did and hear that story and not feel anything other than totally dejected. But, but has that changed since you've put this put this piece out into the, in, into the open so people can listen to it and, and there, you've had the reaction to it? Being totally honest, no. It's, it's just, it, it's like screaming into the void, you know? Um, spit into a hurricane, comes right back in your face. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, I just, I, and again, I'm just, maybe you caught me on a, on a day, you know, it, it's been quite a couple of weeks for us as a team to put this together, the planning of it, the, the, the doing of the actual recording, the editing, the releasing, you know, um, God bless Zero Hedge for being the, the what, I, what appears to be the only media outlet to pick it up. Um, but no, I, I can't say that I feel any better having done it. Well, it's early days. Let's, let's see where this goes. Because, you know, I, I say my reaction listening to it was it, it it felt like this actually may well have the power to change some opinions, which is which is why I wanted to talk to you today about it. And, and I'd say I'm, I started off at the top of this talking about hoping that some of the bulls would just ignore the stock price and listen to this and perhaps take it on board and, and at least think about it. And that's really all we can ask people to do yeah. um, is, is just not be completely blinkered because people will claim that the short side are completely blinkered but look, we can acknowledge that the car company is now worth hundreds of billions of dollars. We can acknowledge that they're selling cars. We can acknowledge the stock price has gone to 2400 That's fine. All that stuff is demonstrably true. Um, and we can also agree that, that 
this thing will do 0 to 60 in 0.1 of a second faster than many of its competitors. Uh, we can acknowledge all that stuff. But at some point in time, you have to look at what's happening here. You have to look at the broader picture and the stuff behind the numbers because yeah. the numbers, not only do they not add up, but really in the scheme of things, they're meaningless. This is, this so, is a human story. Let me, let me leave you on a note of hope. Um, I'm the world's best contraindicator. <laughs> and so if I'm feeling dejected, maybe we're closer to the end than I feel. Well, listen, not, not only can we <laughs> both hope that's the case, but listen, I, I commend you and Georgia for that stubbornness. Um, you know, I know you take an awful lot of flack. Uh, I, I've been fortunate enough to get to know you. I know that you don't deserve it. Um, but uh, but kudos to you for, for continuing to, to, to do this. Now, for, for those listening to this that aren't aware of the Chartcast, we've spoken about it a lot, but just, just do let people know how they can follow you on Twitter, how they can listen to Chartcast and, and anything else that they might be able to sure. glom onto. Appreciate it. I'm at um, at Tesla Charts. There's probably 25 or 30 fake Tesla Charts accounts. So make sure, you, <laughs> make sure which is a whole other story that we didn't get into. Um, Georgia Orwell is at Georgia underscore Orwell underscore um, at Evacuation Boy and at Polls Tesla for the rest of the team. You can find the podcast on all the major platforms. TC's Chartcast, TC apostrophe S Chartcast as it sounds. Um, you can also go to tcchartcast.net and get all of uh, get a direct link to our buzz buzzsprout uh, account that has all of the podcasts there um, but by and large you can find it on on most uh, major um, podcast um, platforms and then my pin tweet is always the latest podcast and and we have um, somebody helps us with it that always you know subtweets me with all the links and so it's pre pretty easy to find um, but Zero Hedge did an article on the most recent two podcasts and um, they are directly embedded in that article as well. Uh, and I did want to end by thanking you, Grant. Uh, you know, you're one of the good ones and I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss all of this. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you either as your interviewer on the Chartcast or as a guest on your show. Well, thank you for doing this at, at, at short notice. It was I was so compelled by it. I just felt this was something that we had to strike while the iron's out. So thank you both for, for doing it and, and thanks for coming and talking to me today. Appreciate it. Well, as I said, I promised you at the top of that a fascinating story. And uh, look, it, it's it's stuck with me. I've had bits of it going around my head since I listened to it. I've read a lot of the of the same um, documents that were posted. I've followed the story, though not as closely as I will from here on in, because I do find it a compelling argument. I do find it a compelling story, well told, effectively told, and told in such a way as to make it extremely believable to me. And, and if it's true, if even... 80% of it is true. It's, it's, it's a mind-boggling story that hopefully some journalists of real bite and bark will dig into this and, un and uncover the true story because I suspect it will, it will run both deep and high. For any bulls still listening, well done. I appreciate you staying with it till the end. I, I, I appreciate you having a, a mind open enough to, to listen to this. And if you've already written it off, that's absolutely fine. All we can ask is that you, that you have a listen to it. I found it convincing. Other people, I'm sure, will write it off. But I think I'm safe in saying that anybody who was on the fence before that is going to have an awful lot of questions after it and perhaps start to go down a few rabbit holes, which, frankly, if more people went down, I suspect stories like this would get much better coverage than they do and coverage closer to that which they deserve. So thank you for spending the last, uh, I guess, hour and 40-odd minutes with me. I've enjoyed your company, even though we haven't been able to see each other. If you've got any questions, feel free to email me about them. Let me just remind you, you can follow TC on Twitter. You'll find him at Tesla in all caps, charts in lower caps. Beware, as he said, there are plenty of imitators. And uh, Georgia underscore 
Orwell underscore, and you'll find their podcast, TC's Chartcast, in all good podcast outlets. Uh, if you don't follow me already on Twitter and you'd like to do that, you can do it very easily by looking for at TTMYGH, or you can find out more at TTMYGH.com. One last thing to do here, and that is to remind you that nothing you've heard in the past hour and 40-odd minutes should be considered as investment advice. We have been talking Tesla, and when you talk Tesla, all bets are off. Please, please, please do not touch this company or any companies without doing a requisite amount of due diligence or speaking to a financial advisor. Thanks so much for listening. Listener.